one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 404 for the week of Monday, January 30th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me once again tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. Just happy to be here. I don't blame you, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Well, Sawyer, I'm ready if you are. Uh, it seems like you're ready, and seems like Gene's ready, and it seems like I'm ready, and I hope you, the listeners, are ready. So let's begin our trip around the table and into space, and we'll start this week with Gene. So can you start us off in our first story? Oh, boy, can I ever. Uh, the same time last week, uh, Newt Gingrich, who is uh, one of the Republican uh, presidential hopefuls, uh, said that uh, during the uh, run for the Florida uh, primary, he was going to go ahead and make what he's calling a Kennedy-esque uh, speech. Well, he decided to announce that, well, he wants to go ahead by the end of his second term, which would be about, I'm guessing, about 2020, uh, that the United States would have under his watch a permanently manned lunar base fully operational and uh, and fully going on the moon somewhere. Well, that uh, that drew the uh, the attention of a lot of people during the uh, the second CNN debate uh, about uh, about spaceflight, and uh, uh, the 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 three can the other the other three candidates, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, Rick Santorum, and Ron Paul, uh, had their own comments to make about uh, Mr. Gingrich's uh, lunar base plan. Well, uh, not a lot of them, <laughs> not a lot of them appreciated it. And uh, they're kind of sort of falling under the fallacy that, again, we're spending all of our money up there and not down, you know, not here on Earth building things and so on. Uh, in fact, um, I believe if Rick Santorum said something to the effect that, uh, uh, you know, it's just not in the cards right now, and I don't think that uh, you know space is a, is is a place that we should be looking at at for large expenditures and so on. And Ron Paul, you know, I I, I you know I love him dearly, but he just had that uh, a very very cavalier uh, attitude toward the whole thing. Um, Mitt Romney also during that debate said uh, that he would he doesn't really look at, at a lunar base as an objective for uh, for the uh, the United States at this point in time, due to the uh, you know the the economic situation, well, pretty much all three of the remaining candidates kind of sort of shot themselves in the foot, and I'm just thinking, oh well, well there goes the Space Coast vote. 
Um, the, when I thought about, when I first heard that, I said, okay, let me see. I've, I remember the space exploration and the, uh, yeah, the space exploration initiative under, uh, uh, Bush 41. I remember, uh, the DCX and I remember the venture star. I remember shuttle C under Bill Clinton. I remember the HL 20 under Bill Clinton. All of those programs were cut. Um, I remember Constellation, obviously, under uh, George W. Bush, and now the promissory note that we sort of have under under this administration. And I, I've I've noticed too that a lot of these big ticket things never really come to fruition. So when I see hear a politician making large promises about spaceflight, I get you know I'm like, okay, you're obviously pandering for votes. Um, well, the funny thing is, right after that announcement, um, Michael Griffin, former NASA administrator, uh, Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the surface of the moon, and um, one of uh, and uh, uh, shuttle pilot Bob Crippen all endorsed Mitt Romney, <laughs> which to me seemed kind of bizarre after after that. So Romney comes over, he makes this big thing, he makes this speech over in Brevard County. Saying that he's going to sit down and he's going to sit down with 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 current NASA leaders, he's going to sit down with the military, he's going to sit down with uh, people in, in industry to find out exactly what we should be doing and iron out a, a whole you know honest to goodness plan. Essentially admitted that he didn't really study it all that much. In turn, he hires Scott Pace, a name that's uh, familiar to anybody that uh, follows spaceflight. Um, Aside from sitting um, on the uh, on the uh, uh, Norm Augustine committee, and uh, apparently Scott is going to go ahead and sort of educate Mr. Romney on on, on spaceflight. Either way, uh, no matter what happens here, it puts spaceflight in in the newspaper and it's put spaceflight on the forefront for a little while anyway. So, and to me, that's that can only be a good thing. But. <laughs> You know, what, what do I actually think about all this? Again, as I said, when I hear a politician making, making big speeches and big promises for big programs in space, I, I, I say, okay, been there, done that, and show me the money. And right now in this economy, unfortunately, I don't think that money's coming. So, you know, but we'll just have to watch and see if this kind of percolates a little bit more, if, if this whole thing keep spaceflight in the forefront and uh and hopefully it will hopefully it, it will, will will stick like glue to when we go into texas when we go into places like mississippi or or louisiana and or uh, other other places that nasa touches um you know uh, california ohio and so on hopefully it sticks there and hopefully it stays an issue because i'd like to see it at least on the forefront and on the front burner for a change rather than sitting there in the back and, and, and ignored. Uh, so hopefully, if anything good came out of this whole fiasco, it's that. People are finally talking about what we really should be doing. I have my own ideas of what we really should be doing, but I'd like to hear from you guys what you think. I found this pretty interesting because for me, I'll have to admit I am a first-time U.S. voter coming up this election. So I'm keeping a very close eye on this one in particular, and for me, obviously, space is a topic of interest for a candidate. And to see this, I was a little shocked. 
first off that it was mentioned until I realized it was mentioned in Florida with the recent decline in jobs down on the Space Coast. This is obviously a good way, according if his plan comes to fruition, of bringing jobs back to the Space Coast and getting that business, as well as all the businesses that depend on the Space Coast itself, such as restaurants and things, getting them back online and getting that customer base back. In regards to plausibility and the actual concept itself, I'm a little skeptical about it. I mean, then again, back in the 1960s, we said we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade, and we did it with a year to spare. However, then again, this is not exactly the most ambitious time period. NASA is not getting 4% of the budget, and we basically don't have a space race that we're fighting with anybody else to necessitate the need for this rush to the moon. So honestly, I think it's more of a voter ploy, like you were saying, to get votes and something that honestly won't come to fruition. The one thing that I will uh, say and that I didn't really hear uh, from any of the candidates, possibly maybe from Romney, maybe, and this is something we, we – there was a huge discussion uh, about this on Twitter. Um, I had mentioned that possibly – uh, doing for human spaceflight what uh, we do right now for planetary science, which is having a bona fide decadal survey, meaning, you know, okay, bef- at, at every 10 years you go ahead and you, you sit down and you sit down with, with, with the scientific community and industry and, and maybe the, even the other spacefaring nations and you say, okay, let's build a roadmap of where we think, with all of the resources that we have pulled together, what can we do in in space, in with human spaceflight? And I think that's that's really the way to go. And while we were having this debate, I think there was there was like four or five of us involved. Um, Jeff Fouts in, uh, interjected. Um, Jeff Fouts from the Space Review uh, interjected on our conversation and said that. Indeed, um, a decadal survey is a component of the uh, of the 2012 budget. So we will have to see if all of that really, really comes to fruition. But I think a decadal survey is probably a step in the right direction. That also means, uh, I, I put the caveat in there, that this also means that this cannot be overridden. Once it's voted upon, that's it. It's in place. It goes. And... And no administration change could go ahead and and uh, and reflect that, and or change anything that it is set in stone, and that's what we really need, I think, uh, going forward. That's that's just my opinion. At this time, I just want to restate something that we've that used to be at the beginning of previous episodes in regards to this and all other topics that we mention. All these opinions are ours and ours only. That includes all the panelists, not NASA, not ESA, not any other space organization or website out there, only us on this panel for this episode. Just want to put that out there now. Thank you for repeating that, Sorry, I appreciate it. <laughs> all right, so continuing on while we're talking about ambitious goals and getting to the moon, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the Cold War was uh, basically a race that we were going and that led us to go to the moon. And there was a race for firsts. One of them that uh, Russia succeeded in, or at the time the Soviet Union, was the first woman in space, Valentina Tereskova. They had one more female to fly after that. 
that was about 19 years after Tereskova. Since then, no woman has launched into space representing Russia or the Soviet Union. Well, this will be the first female to launch under Russia, not the Soviet Union, under Russia. Her name, Yelena Sarova, and she is the first female cosmonaut of the post-Soviet era. And she's figured to fly probably to the International Space Station around 2013, according to a Roscosmos spokesperson. The flight would last up to about 170 days, and her husband, who is also a cosmonaut, and her nine-year-old daughter approve of the decision. You know, it's it's kind of funny that they kind of that that the, then the Soviet Union, they kind of set the you know set the bar by putting uh, Valentina Tereskova up first during the 1960s, and we had to wait until you know the 1980s with Sally Ride uh, and the shuttle program to uh, to uh, follow follow through. But um, now it's you know for us it's that that you know the, the gender barrier had been broken and it's been broken now for a while i'm i'm actually a little bit surprised that the nation that uh that set the bar that high um had to go ahead and wait all this time for another uh uh for another woman to uh for another russian woman to go ahead and uh and break the barrier but i'm glad it's finally happening me too i read that article and i was confused i thought wasn't there somebody else and it turns out there wasn't the last person was in 1982, Svetlana Savitskaya. Sally Ride was 1983, so one year after that. So basically, from the time that we put our first female in space until now, there has basically not been a single female cosmonaut to go into space. That's that. I'm 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 shocked, and and I'm I'm actually well, and but happy that that mistake is now being corrected. Yep, so it's expected around 2013. The actual flight designation has not been announced. Look. And just another International Space Station note I thought I'd throw in, by the way, is that recently was the launch of another Progress to the International Space Station. That was Progress 14M, which launched and docked successfully, unlike two previous Progress launches ago. And that one docked, and then the other one, Progress 13M, undocked and before it re-entered the atmosphere it actually deployed a microsatellite and then re-entered <laughs> well at least it it uh, it it uh, uh, did some work again before it uh, went to its uh, fiery fiery reward um, also sorry I think there was a report uh, that the next two uh, Soyuz launches are also uh, kind of in limbo a little bit um, on board. Uh, the, I think they found a manufacturing flaw in the uh, uh, instrumentation module on on the last uh, on, on a Soyuz that they're building. So uh, so the uh, uh, next uh, flight to the ISS for uh, for, co- for for crew will be delayed until they can go ahead and, and get that manufacturing problem fixed. Hey Gene, you remember the old joke from uh, I guess it amounts to a few decades ago that. You didn't want to buy a car that was made in Detroit on a Monday or Friday because the workforce tended to be a little distracted and didn't put out their best products at the beginning and end of a conventional Monday through Friday work week. I think I bought a car like that. I wonder, yeah, everybody everybody back in the 60s and 70s had some that you really had to wonder about. But um, you got to wonder, manufacturing problems? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Note to Russians, manufacture only Tuesday through Thursday. Exactly. There you go. And we'll come back to more rocket news later, but in the meantime, we'll head to Mark. That's Mark with more rocket news. I just uh, had something that interested me that I wanted to to pitch out there, and this is a short little bit. But it's about the uh, Space Act agreement that we hear about from time to time with NASA and with other partners for the Commercial Crew Development Program. And this is particularly about ATK. And they've uh, recently completed – this was uh, actually released – the day after we recorded last week, so this was a release uh, just less than a week ago now as we talk, that uh, they completed their third of five milestones in the company's Unfunded Space Act. And when I say unfunded, it's an agreement between ATK and NASA, but uh, it's supported by internal funding from ATK so far. But they completed the third of five milestones, which is a launch system initial system design review, and it indicates that they're moving forward on their plans to have the uh, ATK and the Liberty program be a viable contender in commercial crew launch. Now, the uh, Liberty transportation system, as it's called, uh, has ATK as the the prime, I guess, uh, contractor or participant in that and they provide the first stage of that rocket which is a five segment solid rocket motor and another company named Astrium which provides the core stage from the Ariane 5 rocket including the Vulcan 2 engine as Liberty's upper stage. This uh, launch vehicle that they have in design has going to have the capability of lifting 44,000 pounds to low earth orbit and uh, apparently they're they're in it for the money and they're putting their own money behind it the uh, five segment motor of course that was something that uh, came from the shuttle and from plans for the Ares rocket and of course the core stage of the Ariane 5 this motor from Astrium uh, that was originally slated that I, I read here to lift the Hermes space plane Their current goal was to have test launches in 2015 and a crewed flight in 2016. There's really probably more going on than we managed to talk about with uh, with some of these companies. And at the same time, some of the news is painfully slow coming out to us. So I thought I'd bring up just this little highlight of something that's going on out in Utah. I'm glad you did, Mark. I'm also, you know, wow! It was I didn't know that it was set up to uh, to initially deliver Hermes. There's a there's a project I haven't heard of since like the 1990s. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, nice to have some, you know, really. It, it's of course nothing is proven until you until you launch it. When it's new systems that are being uh, put together, first stage, second stage, and such. But um, you got some proven technology in the in the core concept and the core hardware here. That's just yeah, I'm uh, go ATK go ATK. I mean the the design has obviously been tested. It's been used, you know, at least for the first stage, it's been used for the shuttle for how long? And uh, it was tested as uh, as good to go um, uh, via the Ares 1X. So uh, it's a good sound design, so. And they also had their uh, their demonstration motor tests. I believe uh, they had a a uh, hot test with high, you know, relatively high temperatures. They had one that was cold soaked for cold temperature uh, start of that five segment motor, and all of their design motor tests, uh, from what I had heard at the time, and 
haven't heard anything since contrary may have missed it but seems like that all went real well i'd still like to see if we can get somebody from atk on here to talk uh talk about the liberty and uh, and what their plans are and how they're going to go ahead and get it out to the pad and and so on because I, I i recall um asking this was uh, in conjunction with the more science laboratory uh i remember talking about the the uh the mobile launch tower that was being tested out there uh, out on pad 39b at the time I remember asking a question about that and saying um, asking about liberty specifically and uh, the answer I got with reference to that would be uh, they, they've actually looked into the possibility of using the uh, the mobile launcher that uh, that was out there for liberty and the answer was it would require some some really, really heavy-duty modifications to make it work with the uh, with the Astrium upper stage. So uh, the mobile launcher was uh, uh, removed from the table for the Liberty and is now just being modified for the SLS. So, but um, yeah, it would be neat to to go ahead and talk to somebody from ATK to find out what what how what really how how they're doing and so on. So maybe we should look into that. Alrighty then, so with that, we've made one round around the table. Let's go for round number two, and it goes back to you, Gene. Yeah, there was a report that was published in Florida today on January, on oddly enough, on January 27th, which was the anniversary of the Apollo 1 fire. Um, the report indicated that uh, uh, the Aerospace Safety Panel uh, wrote, a, uh, wrote the, a report indicating that and I'm going to quote directly from it. It said, quote, NASA is not adequately prepared to evacuate the International Space Station in an emergency and should put in place a fully vetted, detailed procedure so that the crew could escape in the Russian Soyuz uh, vehicles. Um, they, the report goes on to say that uh, there is a greater than 30% chance a crew may have to abandon ship between uh, now and it's, uh, the station's currently planned end of life, which is 2020. And um, they're saying that one cannot escape the conclusion that the risk is more than an outside possibility. They cite, um, you know, failure of a critical system or, a, you know, a debris strike or... Um, something else that could uh, force the crew to, um, you know, abandon the station without the possibility of returning the uh, the ISS to uh, to normal operations. So um, uh, that's kind of a an interesting an interesting deal that uh, one that there really isn't sort of a a vetted evac procedure. For the ISS, I would kind of figure that there might, you know, that that there would be one, and apparently there isn't. Uh, the report basically goes on to say that NASA is aware of the problem and they are working it, um, but uh, uh, they basically gave NASA, you know, sort of a failing grade uh, without you know, saying that before you floated this thing that you should have had, you know, really, really a a detailed evac plan in the event of uh, of an emergency. So that was really a shocker. I, I would I would think that there really would be one rather than just you know saying okay everybody just dart for the nearest Soyuz. The timing was was kind of interesting too that the report was released on the uh, on the day of the fire. 
um, you know, on the anniversary of the Apollo One fire. So it kind of, you know, drove the po- point home that you know you, you've got to have you've got to have contingency procedures for everything in place. And uh, um, it's good to hear though that NASA realizes that that is that that's a problem. They're looking into it. Yeah, not to um, heap criticism on NASA, but another point, kind of jumping out of turn here, but another point that um, that was highlighted in that report is the actual hazard to the International Space Station of a possible loss of mission event. And analysis have presented to this panel uh, as recently as May of 2011 that the, I'm going to use, I'm reading from the report, but the probabilistic risk assessment related to ISS loss of mission was 1 in 55 for a 180-day mission. Since there's approximately 20 180-day missions in the currently projected ISS program, that means there's a greater than 30% chance that the ISS could sustain a LOM, loss of mission event, sometime during its projected operating life. Now, that's sobering. You think of, well, yeah, what's the likelihood of a debris strike? Well, what's the likelihood of losing a coolant uh, system that they cut them down to 50% of operations and uh, and required some rather uh, unplanned repairs and a number of spacewalks to get a, uh, a component replaced in orbit and incidentally one that can't be replaced currently without the shuttle, which of course is ended its mission. Um, Another aspect that uh, has not been addressed is the end of life for the ISS and talking about space debris. How do you deorbit something that weighs, uh, let me see, approximately 450,000 kilograms or 990,000 pounds? Now, we've talked about some of the satellites recently in the last few shows having you know, incoming uh, mass of 12,000, 13,000 pounds, such as that. Well, here we're talking about, eh, let's just round it off, say a million pounds worth of space station coming down. Well, that's one of the criticisms that uh, this loss emission planning, if it comes in in a controlled manner, how do you do it? If it's an uncontrolled, what in the world do you do to minimize the, uh, to, to mitigate the severity of it? Or can you? And so there's really quite a lot that that I found interesting in this Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel report. And they mentioned some things that they're going to look to in 2012. And this isn't the first report that's come out, but one of the things that I thought was encouraging when I looked at it is that in the past few years, the number of issues that they've identified have decreased. The number of issues that NASA has taken action on to, to satisfy this panel has improved as the reports have come along. So NASA is doing a better job, but this whole question of the International Space Station, talking about the Soyuz and, and its availability as a lifeboat with, with no second choice, there is no other crew return vehicle, there is no other lifeboat there. It's just, it's just the Soyuz, which, as we've seen, there can be challenges. So there's things to be concerned about for the astronauts that go up there and 
for the next, uh, I guess, eight years to 2020. And they're, of course, talking about increasing that mission beyond that. Um, I think I've made a statement on this show that I doubt the ISS would continue without something critical happening and severely impacting, if not ending its mission prior to 2020. Hopefully that the ISS can get away from, you know, getting, uh, getting dinged during its, uh, during its lifetime. But, uh, you know, the law of averages say, uh, say otherwise. So, well, it's something that indeed we were going to have to have to watch out for. Yeah. Just let me pitch in a little bit more numbers fun from this report. The uh, first flight of the space shuttle, the calculation for a loss of crew event was 1 in 12. That initial launch was estimated the risk to be 1 in 1,000. Well, it was actually 1 in 12. There were a number of improvements made during the shuttle program, but did any of us think that there was a 92% chance the crew could be lost in the first 25 missions? Well, by improvements that, uh, that of course, we've seen and uh, many that have, have gone in the history books and, and been largely forgotten, that risk was lowered to 1 in 90 by the last flight. That's still a pretty high number compared to some other endeavors. All right, so while we're mentioning ISS safety and safety in general, when you go to see any rocket launch, they usually keep you at least three miles away to keep you safe from the rocket engines themselves, from A, burning you, or B, deafening you. Who'd have thought that the safety issue wouldn't be on the launch pad, but before it even gets to the launch site in general? That was the case with a boat that was carrying an Atlas rocket, which happened to crash into a bridge in Kentucky on Thursday, January 26th, on its way to its Florida launch site. According to officials, the hardware itself is safe, and there were no injuries, but the 312-foot Delta Mariner crashed into a bridge and knocked off a piece of it. In other words, a part of the span actually collapsed, and although several cars were crossing the bridge, no injuries are reported. On board it was Atlas V rocket and other components for the Air Force's Advanced Extremely High Frequency Mission, AEHF-2, scheduled to launch in April, as well as an interstage adapter for NASA's Radiation Belt Storm Probes, or RBSP, scheduled to launch in August. And this should not impact the launch date of either. Well, the good news is that uh, there's no impact to any launch dates, but wow, I, I'd, I'd love to hear what the investigation finds out as far as how Delta Man- Mariner actually went ahead and hit the side of the bridge. I'm, I'm going under the pretext that they've made this the sortie before, you know, going through that, that particular bridge and, 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 and through there. But I'm, I'm wondering just you know, what happened. I'm sure. Did, sorry, did you hear anything about like the NTSB or anything like that or, or the Coast Guard or anything like that trying to, to, you know, figure out what exactly occurred or had they interviewed the captain at all or to quote sam sacco i believe that's how it's pronounced the spokesman for foss marine the company that owns and operates the delta mariner in an interview with space.com he said that quote the company's been doing it for over 10 years exactly why this happened i can't tell you the coast guard will lead an investigation into the cause and that will be the definitive explanation as to what happened Wow, it it it'll be interesting to read that report once it gets out because uh, it it just seems to me they they it just seems to me they they do this run all the time. It's just weird. Maybe just the the law of averages caught up with them or or what? 
boat was commissioned in 2002, and in terms of length, it's able to carry three of the booster segments, which are about as long as a Boeing 737's fuselage. I guess the upshot really is is that none of the missions are going to be affected by it by this. So that's 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 always that's a good thing at least. Yep, and initial reports are that the hardware is undamaged. Yay! So the score one for the good guys, I guess. Boy, you know there were some phones ringing that night around the uh, various companies that had uh, interest in that. That that had to be a really uncomfortable time until they started to get some reports of the condition of their of their uh, freight. Yeah, you notice how the least important priority of all these stories, at least of the stories I've read, the least important priority of all of them is how is the bridge? Well, the bridge bridge was actually due to be replaced from what I read on the subject. Oh, okay. That that had not started, so that kind of puts the the state a little bit behind the uh, power curve and in being able to move quickly on this. Well, then I guess maybe maybe the, the, the company was doing the job for them, I don't know. All right, so, Mark, since you decided to include your story as well with jeans, then we'll go on our final go-around of stories around the table for the night. Okay, I'll make this real quick. This is just a quick follow-up to the uh, everybody's favorite probe, uh, the uh, the Phobos Grunt Phobos probe that un- re-entered the atmosphere back on uh, January 15th. There was a report uh, by uh, Leonard David out of uh uh, space.com indicating that they did find out exactly where the where the probe re-entered. It was somewhere uh, crashed near the uh, South American coastline, uh, with debris probably falling into the ocean rather than than making any landfall. Um, but um, uh, it can also mean that maybe some free-falling fragments maybe have reached land. However, there has been really no no confirmation of that. Um, in another uh, report, this is from the uh, Russian news agency RIA Nostrovi, and I know I'm mispronouncing that again. I should learn how to go ahead and pronounce that correctly, so my apologies to my uh, to anybody listening in, in Russia here. Um, NASA has basically said niet to uh, Roscosmos's uh, Experiment, which was to find out if indeed uh, a radar system could have really, really knocked out Phobos Grant. Um, most of uh, the the top scientists within Russia have basically said that the the idea of actually a radar being involved with Phobos Grant was was bunk, and that maybe um, Russia should go ahead and uh, or, or Roscosmos should go ahead and, and take a look at their own internal processes and and maybe. You know, the, the idea that we did float uh, last week, uh, that the main computer crashed and just basically caused everything else to sort of cascade after that was probably the cause. So there, you know, so thereby hangs the tail. There's probably going to be a report released um, this week, this coming week about what exactly happened to the probe. So we'll have to look out for that. And uh, from Spaceflight Now, this was published back on January 26th. Apparently, there's a, a threat now from, the, uh, from a defunct satellite that NASA had launched called the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. Uh, this was launched back in 1995 uh, in December. And uh, it was designed before that, um, and I've said this on this program a couple of times, um, the uh, design to demise uh, process 
which is basically as a spacecraft reenters the Earth, the Earth's atmosphere, it basically disintegrates, and there's really not a whole lot left of it. Um, this spacecraft was was designed was uh, designed before that period of time, so there's still a possibility that uh, it might give us a problem around sometime after the uh, the 2014 time frame. And according to the report here, it says here. Um, when it deorbits, there is a level 10 times riskier than NASA now requires for re-entering spacecraft uh, from an uncontrolled re-entry standpoint. So um, I'm not exactly too sure what this means, but I see that we handled uh, the Upper Atmospheric Research Satellite, or URs. We handled that pretty well, but we'll have to see um, what the re-entry risk is is for this. And... Uh, According to um, to the to the article here, it said that quote later NASA did evaluate the reentry risk for the, for the spacecraft, and found it to be in the order of one in one thousand, or about ten times the maximum desired risk level. So, again, this is something we're just going to have to keep an eye on and see around the 2014 time frame what the, what happens with the spacecraft. So while we're talking about satellites and things like that, I know all of the uh, military fans out there will enjoy this story. A trio of one secret U.S. spy satellites have been declassified and are actually going on display in a museum in Ohio. The museum is the Cold War Gallery at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. And the satellites, Gambit 1, Gambit 3, and a Hexagon satellite. There were two systems they released, that's the National Reconnaissance Office, in September, and those were Gambit and Hexagon. Gambit was a reconnaissance system in the 60s through the 80s, had a resolution of about 2 to 3 feet, and it used high-resolution cameras to photograph areas of interest and return the film, we're talking film, to Earth in special reentry capsules, which would then be caught midair as they parachuted down by an Air Force aircraft, similar with the Gambit 3. Now, the Hexagon system was also, like the other one, launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and it was the last U.S. reconnaissance satellite to actually use film. Talking about size, each satellite itself for the Hexagon system was the size of a school bus and carried, ready for this, 60 miles worth of film. And during its history, 20 of these school bus-sized spy satellites were launched between 1971 all the way through 1986, with only one failure, each one lasting about 124 days, carrying four re-entry canisters for the film. Yeah, that's that's interesting in that you know it, it shows how technology probably has changed drastically in just a few years. Um, from you know having to uh, go ahead and deliver uh, photographic canisters uh, to you know just uh, using you know transmissions to get the image down, it's uh, quite a quite a change, and it's also interesting too to see that the veil is sort of lifting on a uh, chapter in in our uh, in our history. So it's it's um, if I'm if I'm in the area, I'm going to go run down there and see that. Yeah, and this wasn't before electricity. We we had electricity back in the '60s, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's just really amazing to think of how did we do things before there was the the digital imagery. How did we how did we pull this off? 
And this sounds fascinating. I I want to see this. And I remember hearing about it, Sawyer. I'm glad you brought this in. Yeah, now, like with the Mars rovers and things like that, we've got flash memory on board, similar to a flash drive that you might carry in your pocket with you. And it's just a very small device with a lot of memory that I could send back. I mean, for this, for we're talking 60 miles worth of film for a 120-day mission, approximately. What I found amazing was with the Gambit systems, how to recover the film... They would catch the capsules carrying the film midair as they parachuted down. That's pretty cool. And Mark? Well, while we're talking about uh, birds in the sky, anybody up for some surgery? What I've got for you is an article that I found in a publication called Design News, designnews.com. And uh, they talk about a Da Vinci surgical robot that is helping uh, to come up with a plan for NASA to refuel and service satellites in space. Now, what this is about, uh, we've talked about the RRM, the Robotic Refueling Mission, which I'll give you a short update on that in a second. But what they took was this Da Vinci surgical robot. They modified it, gave it a 3D eyepiece. They used an operator console that was located at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. They used it with a workstation to control an industrial robot at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, 30 miles away. And they showed that with students putting this plan together, that they've got a way to operate remotely on something in space. Now, as far as the RRM goes, that was a mission that was impacted with the uh, loss of the Russian Progress uh, cargo launch back that we've already talked about earlier last year and um, the RRM got delayed currently they're saying that the actual work using the RRM and the Dexter robotic uh, arm on the ISS will start in March they'll run through June then they're going to pick up the refueling tasks from July through September and October and this is from Frank Seppolina the principal investigator from Goddard. Uh, March 6th is the target date for their first tasks. And, of course, we talked about that uh, when Atlantis, that was cargo going up on Atlantis. They're going to remove caps and safety wires and uh, be able to demonstrate that they can move insulation blankets out of the way, that they can connect and change tools and do a lot of complex things. And we'll talk about that more as time goes on. But uh, it's coming, getting close. Yeah, Sawyer, you and I saw the, the, the mock-up of the actual box that they're going to be using. It was kind of sort of resembled a, a large, uh, you know, sort of a large, what, what I thought of was just a large, you know, child's toy almost with all these connections and so on that, are, that the robotic arm was going to have to go ahead and, and try to see if it can remove and manipulate and then connect up to. And the gentleman who, unfortunately, his name escapes me right now, who is responsible for for you know, designing a lot of these connectors and so on was taking us through all of that, if I recall. And it was it was quite exciting to to see all of this and 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 see that you know the possibility that you can refuel a spacecraft while in orbit could could be a real real honest to god possibility, which which would which would solve a lot of problems. I believe we may still have images of that. Yeah, so here, I think we do have those photographs. We'll have to go ahead and share them with the with the uh, listening audience. Because if I remember correctly, he brought in the entire mechanism, which 
was basically a large box about the size of a laptop cart that you might see in a library. That's correct. Just to give you an idea of the actual size of it. It, it was uh, uh, quite a quite of a, an impressive uh, you know, rectangular box, but uh, with all of these connectors on there. And again, the job is to see if we could go ahead and make a hard seal on all of these connectors. And if we can, then uh, the possibility of refueling satellites is indeed, uh, you know, a, not just a possibility anymore. It's real, and it could go ahead and change things. Not only will it change, you know. Uh, servicing satellites but who knows we could probably refuel spacecraft uh, you know in the future as well while it's uh, while it's in orbit all right so we've gone around with those couple stories now there's just a couple of things that we need to go over before we finish up here one of them obviously is that the 26th of january is recognized by nasa as the day of remembrance which honors the crew of apollo 1 STS-51L Challenger, and STS-107 Columbia, whose crews lost their lives on the 27th of January, the 28th of January, and February 1st, all in separate years. Once again, we would also like to as well remember the crews of Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia at this time. And for those who are interested, I will invite you, and Sawyer, I hope you can go ahead and put this in the show notes. Just as we were coming on to, uh, um, on to record, uh, Wayne Hill, who was uh, uh, just an incredible gentleman, uh, uh, former, uh, former NASA flight director, all the way up through uh, shuttle program manager, um, wrote a, an essay, uh, What Would Rick, Gus, and Dick Want? And... Um, I would invite all of you to go ahead and read that because it kind of echoes my sentiments as well. Indeed, we'll post a link to that article. And one other last bit of business that we need to take care of that's on a little bit more of an upbeat note. Many of you listen to the show by direct download or through iTunes, but there's some of you that listen through another website known as Astronomy FM. And there are some of you that may not have heard of it or may not have ever checked it out. Well, you can visit it by going to astronomy.fm, and they've done a lot more than you could ever imagine to help us and for the space community in general. Astronomy FM broadcasts 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year online, with both syndicated as well as individual programming. Syndicated programs include the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, um, one that you might have heard of known as Talking Space which, as of this release date, airs Friday nights from 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time and repeats every four hours for the next 24 hours after that original date, as well as other great individual programming, such as Under British Skies, Space Pirate Radio, Astronomy Out and About with friends of the show Jeff and Becca Setzer, and The Event Horizon, which airs right before Talking Space on Friday nights. Now, all of these shows, you know how much it costs you to listen to them? Nothing at all. They also were the ones who helped us with our live broadcasts for STS-134 and the very well-listened-to STS-135 live broadcast from the Kennedy Space Center. They were the ones who provided the hosting for us. Pretty impressive, right? And I wish there was some way that we could thank them. Well, turns out there is. Astronomy FM is currently asking for donations this coming week, and at any time that you can, you can either do a one-time donation or a recurring $5 a month donation to keep Astronomy FM going, because 
shows like this actually cost money not only for us to put out, but for them as well. And so we want to help support Astronomy FM for all that they've done for us. So if you've never heard their programming, go check it out at astronomy.fm. And if you have heard it and you want to keep them going, go ahead and click that donate button. And on that note, I'd like to thank everybody here for joining us as this show comes to its conclusion. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And uh, again, Godspeed the crew of Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, gentlemen. We hope you're enjoying the new format because I have to admit it's a lot of fun for us here. And once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.